Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You wanted law and order in this town. You've got it. Randy! Randy! Those who would trade our freedom for the soup kitchen of the welfare state have told us they have a utopian solution of peace without victory. They call their policy accommodation. And they say if we'll only avoid any direct confrontation with the enemy, he'll forget his evil ways and learn to love us. There are cynics who say that a party platform is something that no one bothers to read and it doesn't very often amount to much. Whether it is different this time than it has ever been before, I believe the Republican Party has a platform that is a banner of bold, unmistakable colors with no pale pastel shades. A while back along the campaign trail, I was doing a question and answer session when a little girl, couldn't have been more than six or seven years old, stood up, asked a question I'd heard before, but coming from her, it threw me. She said, why do you want to be president? I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. March 30th, 1981. We hear much from Moscow about a new policy of reform and openness. Some political prisoners have been released. Some economic enterprises have been permitted to operate with greater freedom from state control. Are these the beginnings of profound changes in the Soviet state, or are they token gestures intended to raise false hopes in the West? We welcome change and openness. The advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Ronald Wilson Reagan, February 6, 1911 to June the 5th, 2004, was an American politician who served as the 40th president of the United States from 1981 to 1989. The life of Ronald Reagan, coming soon on 10 American Presidents. I'm Chris Stewart from the History of China podcast, 
and I approve this message. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Rufle Brown, who's in lockdown sunny London. It's VE Day, don't you know? Today we are joined by pundit Laura Babcock in Hamilton in Canada, journalist Emma Burnell in London, and by political consultant Doug Levy in San Francisco. Say hello, folks. Hello there. Hello. In a week that has seen the UK become the European nation with the greatest number of COVID-19 deaths, we take a scattergun approach to news in the US, the UK and Canada. When the Prime Minister returned to work a week ago Monday, he said that many people were looking at the apparent success of the government's approach. But yesterday we learned, tragically, that at least 29,000 427 people in the UK have now lost their lives to this dreadful virus. That's now the highest number in Europe. It's the second highest in the world. That's not success. So can the Prime Minister tell us how on earth did it come to this? We've heard from uh, Professor David Spiegelhalter and others uh, that at this stage, at this stage, I don't think that uh, international comparisons and uh, the data is, is yet there to draw the conclusions uh, that we want. The argument that international comparisons can't really be made when the government's been using slides like this for weeks to do international comparison just really doesn't hold water. Um, I'm afraid that many people are concluding that the answer to my question is the UK was slow into lockdown, slow on testing, slow on tracing and slow on the supply of protective equipment. Deaths in care homes continue to go up. Why hasn't the government got to grips with this already? Uh, well, actually, uh, Mr. Speaker, uh, I mean, he's, he's quite right. And I also want to acknowledge the incredible job that our frontline workers are doing since the beginning of this crisis in the CHSLDs and elsewhere. You are a source of motivation for all of us. You are taking care of our parents and you're taking care of our the people who are ill in our society and you're taking care of us and you're leading the fight against COVID-19 since the beginning of the crisis and you should have more than just our recognition. You should be paid conveniently for the essential work that you are doing. Today, I'm able to announce that we have concluded a deal with all the provinces and territories in order to bona fide the salaries and wages of essential workers. We're currently working on details with the last provinces, but I want to underline that this is a joint effort. All the premiers agreed we must support our essential workers. You know, we have known all along how, what a weak man Donald Trump is and how mentally infirm he is and how easily he could be set off. And, you know, now that we found his weak spot, he demonstrated for 12 straight hours in a row 
that he could be compared to Ronald Reagan, had the truth told about him, and he would absolutely lose his damn mind. We expected this ad to hit. We did not expect him to behave in the completely maniacal way he behaved all day today, but here we are. Let's take a look at some of his reaction. Uh, here's some of what Donald Trump had to say about it today. I guess they don't like me, but let me just tell you, these are losers from day one. Guys like Bill Crystal. He's been, he's 0 and 32. George Conway, you take a look at him. Just take a look at that guy. The man's a stone cold loser. So they should not call it the Lincoln Project. It's not fair to Abraham Lincoln, a great president. They should call it the Losers Project. Donald Trump, does he just not comprehend that he got so much more attention to your commercial by his public reactions today? Yeah, the group of us in the Lincoln Project, uh, myself, Steve Schmidt, John Weaver, Reed Galen, uh, General Horn and others, for years in politics behind the curtain. We didn't want our names out there for years and years. But now Donald Trump has decided he's going to make us front and center because he thinks like a lot of other people that he used to know or Republicans he's run into, that we're going to be intimidated or we're going to shut up or we're going to go away or we're going to stop. He is entirely mistaken. We will take this fight to him every day. And the more it rattles him, the happier I am. And it's rattled him terribly, Lawrence. It is, it is, it is, he is, he is done shook, as they say. Doug, it's morning in America. It seems that uh, specifically that uh, ad campaign from the Lincoln Project has touched a raw nerve with your president. He's been rage tweeting. Um, what does this expose about your commander-in-chief? It's another example where we get to see how thin a skin he's got and how he's much more concerned with his own reputation, his own image, his reviews matter more to him than the fact that we have tens of thousands of people dead and uh, some of the forecasts are saying it's going to increase to as many as 3,000 people dying every single day from this thing. I, I must admit, I, I'm somewhat surprised that he hasn't had more criticism from Republicans. I know the Lincoln Project are a group of never-Trumpers, but they can be branded as such. You know, they've always disliked him. This is the biggest national crisis that the U.S. has had since uh, World War II, and he's not displaying leadership or, at the very least, empathy. Why aren't more Republicans up in arms about his performance? Craven greed and politics. They are thrilled that they've gotten hundreds of highly conservative judges onto the courts. They see Trump as a vehicle to continue consolidating their power. And while we're paying attention to the pandemic, Trump's administration continues dismantling consumer, environmental, legal protections. Worker safety rules are being relaxed. There's a significant percentage of the Republican Party these days that apparently cares more about that than keeping America safe. Of course, Donald Trump called uh, Project Lincoln a bunch of losers. Laura, over in Canada, one of the biggest losers of the COVID-19 crisis has been the Conservative Party leadership race. Um, you now have a lame-duck leader, Andrew Scheer, um, how has he been doing holding Trudeau's Liberals to account during the COVID-19 crisis? 
At the beginning of the crisis, he was working hard to get partisanship out of the way and be supportive of especially the initial plans that were there to help with small business and help with employees. But since then, we've seen it get a little more partisan. Mostly people are looking at what they're putting out in terms of criticisms as a party and finding them to be quite feckless and weak. It's not a good look, some of the things that they're saying. Some of the members of the leadership race, especially fringe candidates, are trying to play this too politically, and there's no appetite for that as a country right now. Trudeau came out of the gate saying, we're in this together. He's been consistent about that. There's been a narrative every single day in front of his house that he has said, we're in this together. And so I think, if anything, the Conservative Party is losing ground in this. In fact, even yesterday, Trudeau did a live Zoom conference with the other MPs so that he could take direct criticism, him and his ministers. So as even though a lot of their answers were just placeholder answers and very political in nature in terms of, well, you know, we're doing so well and thank you and blah, blah, blah. At least the perception that he was willing to sit in his home office and take criticism from the Conservative Party is another win for Trudeau. So Trudeau and his ministers continue to be very accessible, very communicative, very much on the same narrative from the beginning. We don't see any of the kind of nonsense and noise coming out of the White House. If anything, we see a commitment not just to evidence, but even yesterday, Trudeau had this incredible quote where he said to the nation, if you are risking your lives to keep this country moving and are working minimum wage, you deserve a raise. And he's putting $4 billion towards upping essential workers' salaries. I mean, that's just the distinction we're seeing from what's happening in the U.S. You know, we need we need to come on, on to that, uh, come back to that, sorry. Um, but there has been a, a modified kind of structure to the House of Commons with some sessions kind of being online and some sessions still within the House of Commons. Can you, can you explain exactly how that's been working? Well, the Conservatives really fought to have more in-person sessions because that is where they get the clips that they need, those video clips of holding Trudeau and his ministers to account. And those clips, I understand as a comms pro, are essential on social media for trying to drive a narrative and to try to make them look like they're a part of this conversation. But, of course, with social distancing regulations, and we all know that even if you have a few MPs show up, they have their teams. It involves often travel where a large country, not everyone, is easily accessible in Ottawa. And so there was a lot of negotiation back and forth to be able to allow both the parliamentary process to go ahead unencumbered, but also to practice what they preach in terms of safety and social distancing. So they came up with a compromise. I think Canadians are having fun watching them all try to do their Zoom meetings. <laughs> but you know, what? at the end of the day, the business of the nation seems to be progressing. The one thing that Trudeau is being pushed to do is to come up with a budget, but he keeps saying, you know what, we're being transparent about the expenditures in this crisis. Uh, we are not, you know, in a position to be doing that kind of forecasting at this stage. Um, Emma, in our House of Commons, the original one, the mother of all parliaments, uh, Prime Minister's question time is the crown jewels, isn't it? It's the the, the most important event of the week. Uh, this week, we saw Sakia Starmer, the new Labour leader, go up against um, a still ill-looking Boris Johnson. How exactly did he do? Uh, I think it's roundly agreed that he did extremely well. Um, he... He's taken this tack of supportive, for the most part, but critic criticism where it's 
um, deserved. Um, and I think he went a lot in a lot harder on Boris than Boris was expecting, um, but by but did so by using the government's own words to hold them to account. So, for example, uh, when Boris used the line that the, that the government had been spinning for a while, that international comparisons don't show us anything, well, he was able to pull out the, um, you know, the image that is used at the daily briefing where the government compared the death toll in the UK to other nations and, and the COVID, their COVID journey to other nations. So, you know, it, you can't have it both ways. Um, so, you know, it was, I mean, people keep using that word forensic. And I think that partly because, and you know, he was always going to excel in this format. The guy's barrister. You know, this is this is what he's spent years and years training to be able to do is make this kind of argument in this kind of um, place. He's also had um, I wouldn't say the misfortune, uh, the, the fortune rather, um, because nothing about what's happening is fortunate. But um, Boris is a performer. Boris needs a crowd. And he hasn't got one at the moment in the House of Commons because of social distancing. It's very, even, you know, PMQs, there are some people there, but it's mostly very, very empty. And so you, what you haven't got is the jeering and the enormous levels of noise that you would normally get during PMQs. So Boris isn't getting the feedback that he so craves. At the same time, what you have is a more solemn courtroom-like atmosphere, which is perfect for Keir Starmer. So he's had the ideal start in that very, very rigid, specific term of this is going to make your PMQs look better than, say it would, if you were doing the kind of animal crowd business. It will be interesting to see how in the future it translates when the when the crowd's back, whenever that may be. Um, but I think that a good start leads to a good second act generally. Um, you know, he, he, he's hit the ground running really well. The new Labour leadership have been very careful, haven't they, and very measured with their re response to holding the government to account. Um, so how much of that is uh, part of Keir Starmer's um, approach and how much of this is just calculated that here we are, we're in a moment of uh, crisis and we can't go too hard and be too voluble, too demonstratively um, anti the government? I mean, I think if you look at how Keir Starmer ran his leadership campaign, that sort of um, unifying message that he had there is obviously something that he cares about quite a lot. That's not to say that he wants to unify with Tories on a broad prospectus. He's, he's you know, reasonably left wing. He was a Trotskyist well into his grown uphood. It wasn't just a teenage fetish for him, as it is for so many others. Mm. But he, you know, he is... You know, someone who's learned to bring those left-wing values through the system and actually get more done from the inside than the out. Um, so I think that this all speaks quite well to his approach, which is that kind of do it from the inside, do it in a, uh, a manner that is appealing, broadly appealing. Um, opposition as effectiveness rather than noisiness. Back over to uh, you, Doug, over there in the United States. Uh, two men have been involved in an incident about the shooting of a young Georgia man. Uh, Doug, um, this is a, a periodic thing where the rest of the world just looks in horror, not only with the amount of guns there are in America, but also with the way that uh, people can uh, 
quite literally get away with murder. Can you tell us exactly what happened and what is the state of play at the moment? Oh, this video is just horrifying to watch. This happened in a rural community in Georgia, in the southeast of the United States. Uh, the incident apparently happened in February, and here it is May, and only in the last 24 hours have there been any arrests, even though there is video that astonishingly shows these two men murder this young man who was jogging down the street uh, and i mean it's it's, it's mind-boggling that there are people who feel that this somehow is okay and it's so not obviously the fact that the police didn't do anything about it is even more appalling but uh, to their credit the district attorney, after hearing the outcry, uh, the, the, the video was released by another attorney in town. How he got it, we don't know. It was released on Tuesday. The district attorney felt the pressure. He called in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, which is a state agency that doesn't have jurisdiction unless they're invited in, but they were invited in. And within about 24 hours of the GBI getting on the scene, they arrested these two men on murder charges, as should have happened back in February when this happened. So, Doug, what was the, the prosecutor's excuse for not immediately, you know, throwing a murder charge at them? Um, we still have a lot of questions that we don't know the answers to. Uh, the most recent edit, it, it passed off from, uh, I believe, from one prosecutor to another and then to a third prosecutor. Uh, one of these individuals was a former uh, law enforcement member. Uh, so there was a potential conflict of interest with one. Uh, the most recent local prosecutor said he was going to refer it to the uh, grand jury. Well, the problem with that is that during the pandemic, there are no grand juries being impaneled. So that was pushing it down a month or two or longer. Uh, just clearly in Georgia, at least in this community, the rules for old white guys, or any white guys probably, sure look different because you know that if the color of the skin of the shooter here was darker, there would have been a whole different set of circumstances. And uh, you know, there might not have even been a trial. There would have been a more direct action. And what's been the response of uh, Trump or Fox News? Oh God! Um, actually, I, I'm going to I'm going to plead ignorance on that. I have not seen how Fox News has covered this. Um, I will say that the Republican governor of Georgia, uh, after he learned of the video earlier this week, was very quick to come out and say that this has to be dealt with appropriately. And 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 actually, he. I think played a role in the right direction here because it was his comment that helped enable the GBI to come in. And the GBI is an unusual agency in that their jurisdiction is so limited, but this is what they do. They jump into cases where the local officials can't handle it and do what we hope is the right thing. Mm. Um the reason why I asked specifically about uh, Fox News is because we had an incident in the United Kingdom 20-odd, 30 years ago now, 
uh, with a, a, a young man called Stephen Lawrence who was black, who was set upon by a group of white kids, uh, white young men, and uh, was murdered. And one of the key things about that case is that um, it was actually a right-wing news outlet. It was the Daily Mail that actually championed uh, what actually happened to Stephen Lawrence and said that uh, you, we shouldn't see his colour here. He was a young British, English young man about to go to university um, and he was set, a, set upon by, by yobs and, and murdered in cold blood. And there has to be a point where uh, right-wing media in the United States take these things seriously there is the whole problem they have with all kind of black on blue murders and the fact that they always seem to side with law enforcement regardless of what the evidence of the videos show us but it's another thing where you have these weird stand your ground rules or where it is just um, a good old uh, white guy with a shotgun murdering a young black man because he just you know happens to be in possession of black skin going about his business um, I actually, I, I do want to jump in. Uh, uh, it, it appears that the president uh, phoned into his uh, favorite TV show this morning, Fox and Friends, mm -hmm. and actually, um, I, I, I'm going to give him credit. He actually said kind of the right thing. Uh, well, that, well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, he said the, the video was very disturbing, and he... Uh, Express sympathy. You know, my heart goes out to the parents and families and friends. And he uh, was encouraged that the uh, the the governor of Georgia was uh, acting appropriately. Uh, Doug, the fact that Donald Trump has called into Fox and Friends and said this is terrible is a good thing in a terrible tragedy. But how much of this is political calculus? Because um, I know Republican strategists are basically saying that in the in the forthcoming election that if they can either discourage African-American men from voting or uh, push up their vote share by one or two or three percent in marginal states, that actually um, that is the difference between Donald Trump losing an, a close election and him winning it. And, and, as, and as way of evidence of this, um, that if African-Americans had come out and voted in the same numbers that they did in 2008 and 2012 but for Barack Obama, Hillary would have won the last election in terms of the Electoral College in those swing states. So how much of this is I'm, he's, your president is doing the right thing and how much of this is potential uh, political calculus well these days i think we have to presume that everything that the president of the united states is doing is for his own personal benefit and i mean that's all he cares about seemingly uh, you know it, it it appears pretty clear that the republican strategy for the fall election is to make it about your freedom to you know they're, they're trying to position the Democrats as anti-freedom and, you know, protecting against the virus is somehow anti-freedom and tie the reopening of the businesses to gun rights and freedom of religion and all the things that have gotten the Republican voters out. So I think you're exactly right. There's, you know, and, and you know, the right comments this morning have to be seen with some skepticism, but 
it's going to be very hard to say the president didn't do anything when he now has actually said the right thing. Will anybody listen? Who knows? Mm. Uh, Laura, uh, Canada had its own incident with a mass shooting, uh, I think maybe about 10 days ago now, a couple of weeks ago. I forget exactly when. Can you tell us exactly, just remind us exactly what happened and then go on to specifically the Conservative Party and its response to Trudeau uh, wanting to ban assault weapons in Canada? We had the worst mass shooting by... Uh, a single person in Canadian history. And this was where an individual who was clearly disturbed had been working, it seems, for years. Had a, On this, he had taken decommissioned RCMP vehicles. Uh, he had a uniform. He had a bit of a shrine, it seems, to the RCMP. And he decided to start with a domestic uh, of killing his his ex-girlfriend and her new partner. And then he went throughout this rural community in Nova Scotia and started fires, had people run out of their house and then shot them. He pulled over vehicles and dragged people out and shot them in front of their children. Uh, it was a horrific 10-hour shooting spree. And, you know, there are lots of criticisms around why wasn't there an alert put out? Why didn't they inform people that there was a person sh trying to look like an RCMP officer? Because, of course, there's a trust factor there that he exploited. And so it ended up uh, with his death. And so the motive will never be fully known. But within a week of that, about a week of that, the prime minister said that they are going to be banning a whole array of assault style weapons in Canada. And you can appreciate that the conservatives uh, raised a hue and cry about the fact that that wasn't done in a democratic process, that it was an overreach, that it won't actually stop with gun crime. But I think across Canada, even though Canadians don't like the idea that when a long gun registry was tried to introduced, there are a lot of people who use guns for hunting and other things. There's a lot of rural uh, people in Canada, right? And they, they need their guns for different reasons. But I don't think there's a huge appetite in Canada to oppose a ban on military assault style weapons. There's just no rationale for it. I will say that I've never seen a more prolonged fight on a social media thread that I've posted <laughs> as on this. So there's certainly a lot of opinion around it. And I think that it will be imperative that the Trudeau liberals say that they are in fact not saying this is some sort of panacea or some sort of cure for all gun crime. There's a lot of gang gun crime using small handguns in the Toronto area and other big cities. So uh, they have to make it very clear that this is not meant to cure all. But I think that it is, as my post, my simple post was, I'm very proud to live in a country where they can ban assault style weapons. Uh, because we've seen the debate in the U.S. go nowhere for such a long time, and they clearly have a much bigger issue with mass shootings than we experience here in Canada. So it seemed as though it was swift action, and I think it's going to play well in the next election. But aren't the Conservatives also saying that potentially this has been rushed through this legislation, and in part the uh, the Trudeau government are using the COVID-19 um, as some kind of... Um, smokescreen uh, for that to basically rush through this legislation without it having proper scrutiny. 
Absolutely. And that's why I say that they've been, they raised a hue and cry over not just the outcome, but the process itself. Uh, and they also pushed back against Trudeau successfully in the first few weeks of the COVID-19 pandemic, when they thought that he was trying to get overreaching powers. So there's no doubt about it. The Conservatives have a good narrative there on being a check to the power uh, and, the, and the process within COVID-19. I think the broader issue, though, for Canadians is they would probably prioritize that process happening the way that it did as long as the, the assault guns are banned. And that is, I think, a bigger discussion around what freedoms and what democratic processes are we willing to to have fall away in order to protect ourselves, whether it's from the pandemic or from incidents like this. So, so that's a big discussion happening in Canada about, you know, how far do we let governments go in terms of any kind of policies underneath this pandemic? And are we willing to give up some of our freedom, our freedom of movement, our freedom of assembly, all these different freedoms, right? Uh, so that is, that is a raging debate in Canada, even though we seem to be handling the pandemic fairly well, people are concerned about not just the freedom issue, but they're also concerned about the equity issue. This is exposing gaps in our society. And uh, I think there's a real robust discussion around how racialized groups, marginalized communities, uh, people who are living in poverty, how they are affected in Canada and what we need to do to change that going forward. Uh, just before we go back on to Emma in London, um, in your previous answer, you mentioned that uh, Justin Trudeau has talked about um, giving uh, extra money to people who are on minimum wage, who are in, in the front line of the COVID-19 uh, emergency. Again, how have the right reacted to that? Um, because I, I remember reading somewhere, I, I forget exactly where it was, which Toronto newspaper it was, but um, there are worries that the, 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 the generosity of the Canadian government will act as a disincentive for people to work full stop and it could actually distort the economy after the pandemic. This was uh, spurned by a columnist for a national newspaper and he posted sort of the clickbait on the article was, is this going to make people lazy, right? Is this going to create kind of that welfare bum idea? And that was a quick response and repudiation from a lot of Canadians because at the end of the day, people want to be working. They don't want to be in isolation. They don't want to be underemployed or unemployed. Two million people had to go on unemployment in Canada in the month of April alone. And so the idea that this is some, by, by giving a, a, small bump in salary to minimum wage workers who are putting their lives on the line. Again, this is where I think the conservatives have to be very careful how far they go to these old traditional, you know, populist tropes that they have. They have to look at it and say, what do Canadians value right now? And I would argue that there has been just in the last month and a half, a re-examination of the value of frontline workers, of government organizations, of community organizations. Our heroes have changed and, and, and rightly so. And so bumping up from a minimum wage in Ontario of $14 an hour, Canadian, up to something slightly more reasonable. It's still, I would argue, not a living wage in many cases. Uh, but I mean, that is just a reasonable response. There's, it's great to clap for heroes, but it's even better to allow them to have food for their families. And so the Conservatives are, it feels as though they're losing if they overreach on some of these narratives. The world has shifted. This is a pivot for humanity. When was the last time an entire globe was 
caught in the same struggle to this extent. Some people think it's unprecedented in terms of its ramifications for how we work, how we learn, how we socialize. And so Canadians aren't looking to rebuild the economy. They are looking to build a new economy that is more just. And the Conservatives don't have to accept that full force, but I think they will have to participate in a conversation around more justice and this idea that giving people a raise is somehow going to make them lazy or by supporting Canadians uh, that they're not going to want to get back into work. I, I think that's not only obnoxious, but it's untrue. Emma, with you. Um, so we talked about the, the Canadian government and um, the financial package which they have for Canadians. Um there's been potentially some pushback in the UK. Rishi uh, Sunak, our Chancellor of the Exchequer or Finance Minister, has, uh, has potentially talked about rolling back some of the benefits which the British government um, have, have put in place to help people through the COVID-19 crisis. Could you explain exactly what is being proposed? And But also, first off, just remind us exactly what they put in place for British citizens. So what they have at the moment is a furlough scheme whereby they will pay 80% of uh, an employee's wages to their company in order to keep them on the payroll. And the idea is that you keep the employment relationship. Um, so the employee gets 80% of their wage, which should be enough to see them through, particularly as we wouldn't have travel costs, for example. Um, mm -hmm. But they're not working and they have legally, they have to not do any work for that company. So you can't be furloughed and then just sneakily do a, do the accounts on the side kind of and thing. And that's up to, is it two and a half thousand pounds? It's 80% up to two and a half thousand yeah. pounds. Yeah. Um, and then uh, there is, on top of that, uh, there are other schemes to support some self-employed people, but not all because you have to have a certain type of record. I, for example mostly self-employed for the last few years but because I'm a company director because I set myself up as a company um, and I don't have a wage I just draw money from my business I am not entitled to anything thankfully I have a part-time job that's keeping my head above water otherwise I'd just mm -hmm. be on income support um, that is the other thing is there's universal credit that people are applying for but that is uh, and I think I said last time what's really happened is that People who never expected to be really touched by universal credit are finding out just how dreadful the system is. Um, and that's become quite politically a hot potato. Um, and just before you go on, just as a point of uh, to compare and contrast, because we've had this furlough scheme as opposed to the US scheme where they've given money for each household, for each adult per household and for each child, our unemployment figures have not shot up by the same percentage increase as the United States. No. I mean, we don't get me wrong, we have very high unemployment, um, much higher than we had at the beginning of the year. Um, people have lost jobs, um, but an awful lot of jobs have been furloughed that wouldn't have been otherwise. So we, it has stemmed the bleeding. You haven't seen the kind of things that you've seen with mile-long queues that you've got in Florida at the at whatever, the benefits office. Um, this is not to say any of this is easy on most people. Um, and there, and you, we just must remember that some people have lost their jobs and and, and will be struggling. But yes, we ha it hasn't been just the viciousness of the American um, system. Uh, having said that, uh, 
Rishi Sunak is now talking about um, reducing the amount that people get whilst on furlough to 60%, possibly in July. Now, it may be that by July, that's not such a difficult thing because we are starting to open up again and those businesses who have people on furlough will be able to bring them back to work. But the way that he talks about it was your absolute classic conservative mistake. People are addicted, apparently, to furlough payments. Most people have had precisely one furlough payment. It's quite hard to get addicted to something you've had once. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it, you know, he might, may or may not have the right scheme, but my God, he sold it badly, which, um, you know, at the moment, he was riding very, very high in popularity because he was the guy giving away free money. So it's going to make you quite popular. Just ask the Joker from Batman. Um, I'm just thinking the prince. On that. <laughs> but, um, you know, ultimately, he's also going to be the guy in charge of the response. And this kind of language and this kind of outlook really worries me because um, I agree with Laura that this is a moment of possibility but so was 2008 and that was squandered by the left because we assumed that uh that it was so obvious that capitalism had failed and therefore the answer was not capitalism yet instead um it it, it didn't go that way and we ended up with a decade in this country of austerity of you know real hardship of a absolute reduction of the public realm of the public state and people suffering a great deal so that when we came to the next crisis this one we had no resilience because resilience had been completely designed out of the system so while I do agree that there is an opportunity in this crisis that opportunity has work behind it it cannot simply be a case of oh well look at what's happened therefore it's obvious Absolutely agree with that. And what I've been really paying attention to are social justice advocates across a whole spectrum. It's, it's all very integrated, as we know. Uh, and they are, they have raised their level of demand. They've raised their promise of protest. They've raised their collaboration between each other because you're right. The, the, when we had the collapse in the economy and the, eventually the banks were bailed back out and everything got back on track, we also saw a rise in some of the populist rhetoric on some of the uh, conservative, more austere conservative plans for this country. And we've seen that in some election results. And the fact that Canadians are saying, okay, wait, this one kept us home. And I think there's a difference there. You know, I had a business during the collapse last time. I have a business this time. The impact and the change in the way I have to work uh, and how many people lost their jobs this time is just so much more severe and so much more dramatic. And so I, I, I'm not trying to be Pollyannic here, but I have to believe that the personal inconvenience and the destruction of small businesses experienced in this is going to hopefully get people who might not be advocates for justice and for equality and for equity into that game of advocacy because they do not want to be this vulnerable again. They do not want a society that is clearly uh, not got the right uh, foundations to get through something of this nature. And it, you, you don't have to be sort of a progressive left-wing person to understand that the system we currently have 
is failing. So how do we make sure pragmatically, I mean, this should be a shared proposition, not just for the left, but for all, even conservatives who have their own businesses. Uh, how do we ensure that we can all survive and sustain going forward? And I think that's a conversation everyone should have. And we need to have some serious work behind it. I mean, I, I, it's, it reminds me of an argument, well, not an argument, um, a discussion that I've been having with my ex-boss on Twitter, because my ex-boss keeps getting all cross about people being too optimistic about what the change will be. Um, and I'm like, well, hang on, I totally get that, because the argument I just made about how it's not automatic and it needs hard work, but you have to have a certain amount of optimism to get out of bed and do the hard work. You know, if you just have pessimism, all you get is no results and you just go, oh, well, just totally what I expected. Um, so it's a really complex uh, tightrope to walk, I guess. And there are a number of different tightropes that, that progressives, socialists, liberals, whatever you want to call yourself, uh, are walking. Them. First of all, there is the, I mean, less so in your country, Laura, but here you have to, you know, the government in charge of doing this are doing an awful lot of things that would be considered state intervention and socialists and are too many of pe people on the left are just automatically oh the government are shit sorry the government are bad sorry you can bleep me royfield i apologize um and not actually thinking well hang on how do we nuance this better now i i, I think that that the labor current labor opposition are nuancing it pretty well but that's making some of the twitter voices really angry this um, this will require thought leaders in all of our countries, all of our countries to envision a new global economy, a new structure, a new focus and a new way of supporting. I mean, it, we are only as safe as our most vulnerable are safe. And if they are having to work and continue community spread, you know, social isolation is a privilege. Those of us who can socially isolate and manage this, it's a privilege. And we have to have the thought leaders in all the countries not say, how do we get back to normal, but to say, we have a once in a, in a generation, if not lifetime ability to do a reboot if we all work together and understand that we are all vulnerable. It doesn't matter if you're a billionaire, you can escape it for a while, but it doesn't mean that the virus cares. And so we have to be very cautious with that as a, as a, planet and realize we need to do something so that everybody can be protected yeah, absolutely i don't think this has to be the end of or it will necessarily be the end of capitalism but i do think that what this crisis uh, the first crisis followed by this crisis has truly exposed is the limits of that austrian school you know the thatcherism reaganism trickle down economics which have never ever not in the 40 years that of this voodoo economics, as, as uh, Paul Krugman calls it, has ever trickled down. It's never happened. It's never going to happen. That's not what it's designed to do. So I think there is a, a consensus place that we can go back to, which was the butskalism, where you know, uh, the post-war welfare state that was a robust safety net um, now, I don't want to go backwards to a lot of what was happening in that post-war period, but between the 1940s and the 1970s, there was an agreement that a decent social safety net was a requirement for a decent society. How we take that forward into the new economy, an economy that works completely differently from the large managed economies that we had back in those days, that's the big question. So how do we marry 
that old school sense of dignity and welfare with the new with new ideas and new economies. And I think that we, needs to be done. I think one of the things we have to do is get away from Laura, the isms. Laura, yeah. Laura I, I'm going to jump in because otherwise we're going to forget Doug here, right? But this is, I, 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 I love where this debate is actually going because I think it has much larger ramifications in the United States. So, Doug, um, Joe Biden is in a funny position ideologically. If we've taken exactly what Emma and Laura have actually said, that there is uh, this is a moment in history where uh, the ground has moved away economically from Reaganomics. You know, so let's give austerity its uh, American title. And funnily enough, you know, um, Laura, when you talked about, sorry, Emma, when you talked about voodoo economics, George Bush, the first, actually, whilst he was running to be president in 1980, called Reaganomics voodoo economics. So there were people on the... Even then, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's, exactly. it's accepted as consensus now, but it just simply isn't. Mm. Uh, here's a question for you, Doug. Joe Biden is an incrementalist. He doesn't believe in radical solutions. He's on. He's a very moderate Democrat. Um, he's very much a centrist, um, ethically, emotionally, and politically. He believes in consensus. We have a paradigm at the moment where. Uh, the world economic system of deregulation is seen to have failed and of not having universal health care because this is a health issue and an economic issue. Will he, let's say if he becomes president in November, will he be the right person for the radical surgery that the United States economy will need going forward? The reality is that for reasons that I can't fully explain, about a third of American voters support the deregulation, uh, you know, cut off the safety net policies that the Trump administration has been implementing. Uh, I mean, they're even campaigning against the unemployment uh, compensation that I, I don't think that's such a surprise really when if you've been fed a diet for the last 40 years of the stock market is king as long as the stock market is going up we're all getting richer which is not a cool not at all the case if you were sold a narrative which is unions are bad organized labor is bad which is something which america has always wrestled with ever since uh, the 1900s, well, be even before that, unions were always seen as bad and anti-capital. It would make sense to me that somebody in rural West Virginia automatically uh, says these things are anti-American because people have been fed that diet of misinformation for, for generations. Well, and and there are some politicians that are using the pandemic as an opportunity to promote more of those policies. Uh, I mean, even with worker safety issues, it's like they're trying to position the, the folks who work in the meatpacking plants as others, you know, not the regular people, said one Wisconsin politician, actually Wisconsin judge. Um, so the, the economic policies flow from that. 
Mm. Biden has the opportunity to get people to actually listen to him because he is, even though he is stuck in his basement side of politics, uh, because he's been a known entity, mm. at least some on the other side will hear him. Okay, but Doug, I, I'm really interested in this because I know he's stuck in his basement right now for understandable reasons, and he almost doesn't need to say anything. He can just make Trump dig a bigger and deeper hole for himself. So almost by Biden being pretty silent, and the fact that there aren't really any primaries anyway, which is one thing I wanted to get to about the New York Democratic presidential primary, but just put that to one side, is... But there is an opportunity for him to talk about a new economics. And maybe he's the completely the right American politician to do it because he's, he's not seen as a radical. Potentially, if Elizabeth Warren had won the nomination, she'd be saying now all the things she's ever said beforehand. People say, there you go, radical, uh, anti-American, this is economic revolution, etc. Is he missing a golden opportunity to actually put his imprint on the next 40 years of American economic prosperity? I don't think it's out of the question that he's thinking in that direction. Clearly, the, the, the scale of this economic disaster is beyond anything that we could have imagined. And what we have done to this point isn't working and isn't going to work. And there is no plan. There is no script. And I think more and more people are realizing that Trump has no plan. So, Biden has the opportunity to come in with an actual plan. And this is something which I hope he does. It is incumbent on Biden to give voters a reason to vote for him. And that has to include a new approach to the economy, a new approach to health care, a new approach to the safety net programs, and a new approach to how we work together as Americans. And it's going to be very important that he communicates that in a clear and convincing and consistent way. Clinton, Hillary Clinton had all of these plans, but she did not communicate them effectively at all. So nobody heard them. And Biden can't make that mistake. And this is also why his vice presidential pick is going to be absolutely critical. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Just whilst we're on um, that question, my money is on uh, Stacey Abrams to be his VP pick. Uh, she's from the South. Uh, he said he's gonna it's gonna be a woman his VP pick, and she's from the South. Um, she's not exactly on the radical end of American politics at all, but the optics feel right. She she's a great communicator. She's young, and of course she's gonna take that kind of Southern uh, balanced uh, ticket to to Biden's uh, candidacy. Um, who else is in? What other runners and riders are there? Well, uh, there are a lot of people who would love to see him pick Elizabeth Warren um, because she was seen as the sort of, you know, next best of the 
primary contenders. Um, Kamala Harris from California, the former attorney general and now U.S. senator, uh, is is also highly favored. Uh, the problem with Harris is that as a prosecutor, uh, although you know some on the other side of the aisle might like that she's been tough on crime, that unfortunately adds to some of the baggage that Biden has from his roles in years past on you know some of the anti-drug bills that contributed to the massive inequities in our prison system. Um, Abrams is an extraordinary individual who, I mean, her intellect, her communication skills, her values and experience impress the heck out of me. Uh, I personally think, I mean, I whether she's Biden's vice presidential pick or anything, she is somebody who absolutely deserves to be in our national leadership. I was going to say what is so refreshing about Abrams from a communication point of view is that she does not bother with certain conventions. When she was asked if she wanted to be vice president, she effectively said, hells yeah. And why am I going to play with that notion? I want to be there. And here's why. We saw Kamala Harris yesterday dance around a little bit, whether she'd been vetted by Biden, but I think people find Abrams to be incredibly clear. And Abrams also, did she not provide the response to the State of the Union and knocked it out of the park? So I think she has, they, they deliberately gave her national platform to test her comm skills and introduce her. And that was very strategic. I think Schumer was behind that, if I recall. But the idea that she could bring a kind of straight talk, that kind of, you know, Biden can do it a little bit, but he gets a little bit folksy. She can really nail a point and in the rapid response world that it is to fight Donald Trump and his campaign, which they've now said is the Death Star. I mean, that's where we are here. You're going to need someone who's a fierce fighter and does not waste time trying to be, you know, so-called politically correct. And Abrams has that. Abrams also has a very strong history of working across the aisle in her home state. I mean, she was a leader in the state legislature in Georgia. And uh, even after she lost the gubernatorial election, um, I think she did a masterful job of establishing her next move, which was to lead a voting rights voter registration uh, project. And she absolutely made it paramount that it was a nonpartisan effort. And that was hard to do. And I, best as I can tell from across the country, she's done it really well. I think mm, I mean, in terms of my heart, I mean, I was Elizabeth Warren all the way through the primaries until she dropped out. So I would love to see Elizabeth Warren as vice president, but in real politique, I don't want her out of the Senate because that's a Senate race I don't want to see happen. Um, so that's a complication. But I want to see Elizabeth Warren absolutely at the heart of writing the policies that I use. And I don't see her as someone who's so precious that she would only write them if she had a role, you know, was vice president or what have you. So I think that there's, there's you know, a huge amount of energy and ideas that could come from that direction without putting at risk the Massachusetts Senate seat. Because if the, the Democrats are going to take back the Senate, then they need to be defensive there and offensive elsewhere. Um, 
I think Stacey Abrams is amazing. I would just, I think she'd be an incredible VP pick. Um, she does bring that North South thing together. Uh, and she has, yeah, I think comms terms, which is really important for a VP. Um, she's, she's really exciting. Um, in a way that Kamala Harris isn't, I completely agree with that. Exactly. Yeah. And also she would just bring so much energy to a Biden campaign. You know, how old is Biden? 133 or something or another? He's, he's an old man. Yes, he has a certain, you know, folksy common touch, but you have her by his side. All of a sudden, as a duo, it feels so radically different. And she has youth and energy on her side. A completely and and intellect, as has been said before. Uh, be, before we go completely um, off the subject um, of Democratic presidential primaries uh doug can you just quickly just tell us what exactly happened in new york's june democratic presidential primary uh there's a judge involved tell us what's happened let's quickly uh, round up so uh the governor wanted to cancel or postpone it because of the pandemic and a court has said you can't do that and there's going to be some continued fighting over that um I don't know where it's going to wind up, but for now, the primary is scheduled for June 23, I believe. Okay. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. And just very quickly, let's start uh, with you, uh, Laura. Then we'll go on to Emma. Then we'll end up with you, Doug. Just very quickly. Um very obviously, uh, plans for opening up have either either started in some countries or at least been debated. Uh, where exactly is the issue of opening up in Canada right here and now? The province of British Columbia is getting out of the gate first as a large province that has serious consequences for the rest of the country. They have done well in managing the pandemic and they have a phased approach to opening up. They're getting, there's a backlog of 
you know, I think at least 30,000 surgeries waiting to happen. One of the things that happened, of course, with COVID-19 to all of us is that many other important medical procedures got pushed on the back burner. So they are opening up for that. How to do that uh, is going to be difficult, how to get through that backlog. They're throwing a lot of money at it to make it a first priority. But the rest of the country is really watching how BC handles it. Ontario and Quebec continue to have the highest number of cases. And we've seen the military uh, go into the seniors living facilities in Quebec to try to help out there. And Quebec has toyed with the notion of opening up schools and has had a lot of backlash because of the levels they have of the virus, especially in centres like Montreal. So that's kind of going back and forth. Ontario has sent out the message that only when there is uh, the kind of numbers on flattening the curve. Will we start to do our phased opening? But I'm certainly seeing conversations of frustration and impatience. And as we get towards, uh, ironically, the time where we all want to go and further isolate in the woods, our cottage country weekend is coming up. <laughs> uh, the Canadians are most discussing how can we get to our cottages in the woods and is that a safe thing to do? So that's the discussion here in Canada. But really, uh, we've seen some of the prairie provinces look at opening up, but they've always had smaller populations and smaller uh, caseloads. So it's really watching BC and whether or not they can handle this properly that I think is going to inform Ontario. Emma, um, we have an announcement on Sunday, I believe. Do we have any idea what the government is going to propose vis-a-vis -vis opening up? Different ideas, but they all seem to be contradictory. Um, it's been briefed incredibly badly. So clearly they briefed a whole bunch of people, really optimistic scenarios. Then those journalists overdid that on the front pages. So they rebriefed a whole bunch of other people that actually, and it's not like that at all. So it's very, very confused. Um, we get a sense that some things will relax slightly, but they are, I think too many people think, oh, we'll get to Sunday and then that's it. It's back to normal. And there is not going to be a back to normal for a really, 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 really long time. And of course, um, I have loads of friends in theatre. Theatre is a huge, huge part of my world. And none of us see theatre opening before the end of this year. And that's devastating in terms of, of the finances for most. And, you know, we're not just talking about the big West End theatres. I'm talking about, you know, your fringe theatres who, you know, they live a hand-to-mouth existence as it is. So this is an incredibly, uh, I think the government are about to experience a real backlash because they have, um, allowed their briefers to overpromise, and they are about to under deliver on that and they're probably right to under deliver that's the thing they've just set the narrative so badly mm. uh, Doug talking uh, going from theatres to movie theatres in the United States the movie theatre industry which I know is an industry which uh, you're, you're a little bit kind of close to for familiar uh, reasons um, has suffered massively in the COVID-19 uh, crisis uh, could you quickly just reprise us of the situation of organizations like AMC and then go on to specifically where is America and where is Trump with opening up? Well, the entertainment industry is in a, a shambles because we haven't figured out yet how to resume production. You we're talking about you know, filming movies and TV shows requires lots of people standing close together and interacting. And that's not very conducive to physical distancing and wearing masks. Uh, I'm sure we're going to figure it out, but we aren't there yet. Um, I know that my actor friends are learning very quickly how to do auditions via, uh, via the web, which is a little 
tricky. Uh, I actually have heard of some casting calls where they were specifically looking for actors who live with an assistant director. <laughs> <laughs> which is like wow. holy cow um that aside i mean the the actors union and the other organizations are, are are working very hard to try and support people and figure out how to do this how to transition and we'll figure it out that part you know it will happen uh, we're just not sure when as far as the rest of the country uh the sad part is that um unlike any other global or national crisis that I've ever heard of, we have no national strategy. We have each state is on its own. And it's uh, yesterday we learned that the Centers for Disease Control had developed very detailed, I mean, pages and pages and pages of very specific guidelines on if you run a restaurant, here are the things you need to do. And it was like how many sanitizer stations you needed for a restaurant of a given size or at what point it's safe to open your dining room up and how do you keep people from bumping into each other really practical advice for every kind of business you can think of and the white house apparently wouldn't let those guidelines out instead leaving it to each state so what we're probably going to see is some states just flipping a switch and saying, go back to normal. And states like California, where it's a little bit more cautious, uh, Southern California is opening retail starting this week. In my area, retail is not going to open for at least another week because the cases are fairly low, but it is a challenging situation and the health folks want to make sure we get it right. And I applaud that. Uh, but California is going to be fine. Go someplace else and they're going to have an increase in infections. We're already seeing some of that. There's going to be more cases coming in. The hospitals that are trying to restart their elective surgeries are going to have to keep space for COVID patients. And as the COVID patients start increasing again, I think we're going to see second shutdowns. Mm. Well, only time will definitely tell. And on that point, I think we should start to wind things up and go on to our takeaways of the last seven days. If ever we needed things to pick us up, it's now. Uh, during this unprecedented time, uh, we've been trapped with our loved ones at best. And at worst, we've been isolated by ourselves. So, Emma Burnell, I can see you there nodding nodding away um, i'm coming to you raise our spirits okay um bear with me because the title does not sound that cheery but i have re-watched one of my absolute favorites 10-part dramas it's um sky originals it's a cross-atlantic cast so perfect for this podcast uh bring together people like pauline quirk very famous english actress that probably has never crossed the cross the pond uh, and they would have no idea who she is with Rob Lowe. Um, yeah, this is the you know, absolutely amazing cast. It's called You and Me versus the Apocalypse. Now, I know that doesn't sound exactly like what you might want to watch right now. <laughs> <laughs> and the premise is basically there's a comet that's 30 days from hitting Earth. And there's this small group of very disparate people that actually have all connections that spin out as you go through the show and you find out more about them. Um, 
from a priest in the Vatican, Rob Lowe. Rob Lowe is a sexy Vatican priest. I mean, my God. Um, uh, to uh, this guy called uh, Jamie, who's a bank manager in Slough. Um, and they all become very important to the storyline of this apocalypse. Uh, it's a comedy drama. So it has very dramatic, very serious moments, but a lot of lightheartedness as well. It's a very different apocalypse from the one we feel that we're currently living through. Um, so it's, it's escapist enough, um, but it's also just incredibly entertaining. Um, it's beautifully filmed, gorgeously watchable, huge, huge, huge fun. So I highly, if you can find it wherever you can find it, I cannot recommend it highly enough. I think I've just rewatched it the third time since it was made. So I absolutely love it. <laughs> props um how about you laura well if i had to say something good that's back on tv it's the new season of billions but i'll leave that there what i really appreciated this week is all of the new skills that we are learning because of self-isolation and it's making us all very much more i think empowered and self-sustaining we are i learned how to cut both my kids hair <laughs> you know, we're all learning as i mentioned last time bread making such that there's no yeast available in canada hardly anymore uh, but we're also learning gardening we're learning how to not overuse things we're learning how to conserve uh we're learning how to do financials you know so many people are unemployed and while i am incredibly grateful that both my husband as an essential employee in the media here in canada and my own company are are in demand right now we are very conscious of the fact that we don't know what the future looks like. And so we've been teaching our children skills. I even started a little company with my kids called COVID rapid response company. And uh, they've been learning a bunch of skills and they've been getting little checks and you know, it's so that's my that's what's brought me some joy in the past week is just seeing how we're all evolving. And I think we can we can come out of this much stronger and more diverse uh, because of what we've had to endure. Oh, what a heart-filling little story. I want to be part of the Babcock household now. Can you adopt me? <laughs> <laughs> Doug, over to you, sir. Um, that's a, a tough act to follow again. Uh, but some of that is happening here too. And one of the things that uh, I think is a offshoot of the learning new skills part is... Uh, in my community, there's been a tremendous effort and it looks reasonably successful of connecting farmers with consumers. So many of the farmers who sell primarily to restaurants who have had 75, 80, 90% of their business drop off um, have had to completely shift gears. And for example, one farm that I, I got some produce from last week, uh, they had a bunch of students from one of the local colleges help them very quickly come up with a new business plan to shift from restaurant sales to consumer sales. And now I have a list of about 30 farms that are selling direct to consumers in ways that are very easy during the current situation and hopefully will sustain long past it and that's a great thing because the more that we can connect the producers of our food to the consumers of the food we understand the importance of not wasting it we understand the value of high quality and nutritious products 
and we also get to appreciate the amazing bounty that we have in America from great farms and ranches and wonderful soil and it's a good thing. It wasn't Chef Andres part of that as well? He's uh... Well, so actually so he, yes, so he talk about a a hero. I mean that man should win the Nobel Peace Prize. Um what he has done is he's coordinated all across the country restaurants that have had to shut down because of the uh, the pandemic. Um he's organized ways that they can collectively provide food to the frontline workers. It's absolutely fabulous. And I think he's and also trying to get legislation passed, is he not? He's trying to prove it for Congress uh, and yes. get new legislation. Yes, he he wants to make it easier because there's a lot of hoops that people have to go through to sell direct to consumers and we need to we need to make this simpler and uh he's he's my hero right now. Everybody's um takeaways of the week are probably a little bit more meaningful and and symbolic than mine. Mine is oh, number up. one How is that meaningful. Mine is, uh, I've got two. Number one, I've rediscovered reading superhero comics. I've got, bought my Marvel Online subscription. I renewed it and I'm just reading old editions of the Avengers, Captain America, and I'm just transported to a wonderful, safe world of being 10 and 12. And I just love it. And then the second one is eSport. Now, it's because I'm English, it's e-sport, not sports, for our North American friends. I sport is a singular and a plural. Um, but, wow, I have a big love of Formula One. And it's something which I, I proselytize about things which I like a lot. And I know that motorsport is a hard sell on many, many, many levels. Hence, I don't really talk about it, but I love Formula One. I kind of grew up in rapture in love to the black and gold cars of the 1970s and 80s of uh, of the Lotus team so I became an Ayrton Senna fan in the 80s etc anyway of course there's no formula 1 anymore but esports has come in and some of the racing is better than the real racing that you see with the real drivers um so I've been watching esports and I kind of fell into it because I watch a lot of clips of old races on YouTube. So for the last two years, I've been aware that there are serious gamers with serious rigs who are racing. And, and the great thing is about eSport, specifically motorsport, is the skills that you need to, to drive that car as fast as you can are very similar to the skills you need to drive a real car in the real world. It's not like playing FIFA on football or Call of Duty. That is not the same as holding a real gun and blasting somebody or of kicking a ball uh, 20 yards and whatever into a goal because you, you're using your hands, but it's the, you still have a steering wheel for eSports, for e-motorsports. So it's very similar. So things have got so big so fast with uh, the formula. Well, the whole motorsport season being uh, postponed. So much so that the Indy 500 was raced on Sunday of last week with real IndyCar uh, drivers. 
it was on NBC Sports, not on Twitch or YouTube, some, you know, funneled away for teenage boys. It was on NBC Sport with real commentators and it was the real drivers. And uh, a guy called Lando Norris, who is a Formula One driver, he's British, he looks about 12, was leading that race with two laps to go. And one of the IndyCar stalwarts, who won the IndyCar 500 last year, the real race, deliberately took him out because he said that it infringed on a gentlemanly rule of how to pass. He actually hadn't. And also, he wasn't an IndyCar regular. To show you how important esports have become, the Ferrari that that has uh, caused has been immense it's been one of the best things that could have happened to e-motorsport that this deliberate crash happened and sponsors are like we paid thousands of hundreds of thousands of dollars to put this on tv you've got to be sporting this is not a game this is sport and the and the whole of the motor motor world uh, fraternity has gone oh my god right this is not a game anymore. This is serious sport, serious entertainment with serious skills. So my takeaway of the week is I blooming love eSport. <laughs> I love it. It's really bloody good. It was so dramatic. I watched the Indy 500 and with those real commentators, I thought I was watching real sport because I was. Can I there just, can I ask you, Royfield, have you seen Ford versus Ferrari yet? I have. I have seen that. And it was a story which I didn't really know. So I was really, uh, I was really thankful for, for, seeing, for seeing that story. But the, Ford have such an amazing history all throughout, uh, specifically British and, and, and kind of F1 uh, motorsport, that the Ford DFV Cosworth engine is the most successful engine in the whole history of motorsport and it won races from the from about 1968 up until 1984 and ford have this really weird uh history in terms of they being incredibly successful not just in american sport but they say in formula one and globally but they don't really advertise it but it's a great film and of course the good guy in it was a brit they always are <laughs> they always are um folks this has been us um in three countries um going through the last week the last two weeks um of our country's uh kind of history and trying to explain and trying to make sense out of it you can also do the same by going on to midatlanticshow.com we have a little button over on the right it's called SpeakPipe. Go and hit that. I know a few of you actually have in the last few weeks. And, and give us your thoughts and feelings. And we will address them in a future show. Um, because because of the pandemic, um, dare I say, a lot of the old calls which I've had have just been made somewhat redundant. So I'm sorry if you have called, left a two-minute message, and I just haven't played it. But world events have just kind of somewhat overtaken us. But here's the thing. Wherever you are in the world, why don't you go on to midatlanticshow.com, hit that little red tab, speak pipe, and give us a minute or so about your 
pandemic, how you're actually going through self-isolation. It'd be really nice to hear from listeners in Australia, in New Zealand, because I know we have a lot down there. And actually uh, join in with the debate that way, and I'll make sure that those calls get out on a future show. Uh, Emma Burnell, how can people find you on social media? I'm Emma Burnell underscore on Twitter. How about you, Laura Babcock? Laura Babcock across all platforms. And remember, as soon as self-isolation is over, you're adopting me into your family. And uh, Doug Levy, how about you, sir? Find me on Facebook. Uh, the uh, handle is Doug Levy News, D-O-U-G-L-E-V-Y-N-E-W-S. Or on Twitter, I am at SF Doug. Um, if you like to see Tumbleweed, you can, go, you can go onto Twitter and type in Mid-Atlantic Show. If you want to see uh, tweets which aren't really political but are dedicated to the, the soap opera that I love, The Archers, you can follow me where I'm at Royfield on the Twitters. That's us. Uh, we'll see you all again in approximately 14 days' time. Let's hope that, t- that the technology works. Mm-hmm. There'll be no glitches. And uh, we'll see you all again then. Stay safe. Bye-bye. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.